Hi and welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hi, welcome to episode 76 of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. Despite the sorry state of the world at the moment, we have still been travelling a fair bit, if only virtually. Of late, we've heard from guests in Croatia and Iceland, Rome, Los Cabos in Mexico and Tokyo. We've learned what it's like to teach English and lead tour groups in Japan, run an Airbnb and had a travel editor's perspective of her own country, New Zealand. On the food side, we got loads of tips on how to be a better cook with Lucy Tweed, learned why soil is the most important part of the food chain with gourmet farmer Matthew Evans, and we also learned all about whiskey making in beautiful Tasmania. So loads to catch up on if you've just discovered extra virgin food and travel. If you're a regular listener, thank you and welcome back. Before we start, might I suggest you grab a pen and paper or sit in front of your laptop ready to take notes because our guest today, Barbara Sweeney, is going to share her wealth of knowledge about a topic of great interest to many of us, myself included, food writing. Barbara worked as an editor of Restaurant Guides Cheap Eats in Sydney and the Sydney Morning Herald Good Food Guide and has travelled Australia-wide writing about farmers and small producers for Country Style magazine. She's also been a contributor to many other magazines and newspapers. In 2012, Barbara started Food and Words, an annual food writing festival. She also teaches writing and cooking. So whether you're an influencer who wants to polish your food writing skills, someone who's keen to work in the industry, or if you're just curious about the life of a food writer, today we're going to disseminate and deconstruct the world of food writing together. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be here, Natasha. Thank you for the invitation. So, Barbara, tell us how you became a food writer. Food writing is a relatively new concept, really. What you would have called it many years ago would have been the woman's pages or the recipe pages, and it certainly didn't come with a lot of Elan. So when I was younger, the idea of being a food writer just didn't exist in my sphere of knowledge around the kinds of work and careers that you could have in your life. So food writing has kind of evolved as our interest as a community in food has grown. The more of us who are traveling, the more we're interested in food because, of course, our experience of travel informs our food knowledge and our interest in new flavors. How I got into food writing was kind of circuitous and lucky in that I became aware of it when I was working in London at a photographer's agency and some of the work we did was for the food magazines of the day. And they were incredibly lush and beautiful publications. And our photographers would be booked to shoot a particular story. And this just blew my mind, really. I just remember being really excited. I was very peripheral to the process, but these photographers were very kind and would talk to me about the shoot and what they did. And they would involve me in it. And they could definitely see that I had an interest. It was just a fascinating proposition of how you put food in front of a camera and you told the story of that food through imagery. Mm. And so that was my introduction to this amazing world. And when I came back, 
to Australia. I wanted to be involved in this world, you know. It was just uh, massively exciting. And it, it was still such an emerging area. And I remember ringing a woman who was kind of at the forefront of food styling in Sydney at the time, and she did pages for shopping centres, like those really enticing imagery to get you into shopping centres. Mm. And she said, the only way you can get into this is if you are a home economist. (laughs) And so I dutifully took myself off to TAFE to do the commercial cookery course. And honestly, I loathed it. I loathed (laughs) it for all sorts of reasons. I felt very contained and yeah, it didn't suit me at all. Mm. But I have to say, I did learn a lot of basic skills, which have served me in my time as a home cook, a domestic cook. So it honestly was completely serendipitous. I was looking around for work. I'd only just got back to the country and I rang up a mate and uh, said, listen, I'm looking for work. Have you got any thoughts? And she said, look, I've just started with a publishing company and we're looking for researchers. So I went in there to research consumer titles with such illustrious mastheads as choosing a school for your child. <laughs> so here I was, Glamorous. you know, working away. Well, oh, yeah, but, you know, it's really essential information. Mm. And it was great grounding actually in fact-checking and research and detail. And they published a restaurant guide. And because of my interest in food, i.e. I talked about it incessantly and cooked <laughs> precociously and brought lots of things into the office to share and was really interested in exploring Sydney and finding places that were interesting to me, supermarkets that had different ranges of food products than you would find in your big supermarkets, uh, going to areas of Sydney where there was communities of different cultures that I could experience that food. So that was already a pastime. And so I started on this restaurant guide and really that was the beginning of me getting into food writing. Let's talk about the food writing genres, Barbara. When I mention that I write about food, people always assume that I'm a restaurant critic. It's not the only sort of food writing there is out there. Tell our listeners a little bit about the different markets for food writing and the different types of food writing. Well, obviously, everything's changed with the advancing access to our own publishing operations. We are all our own publisher today. So just the access to the internet and Instagram and blogs and websites, it's just changed everything around food. So it's almost as though we could talk about uh, before and after and who knows what the future holds. I kind of span both worlds. So my old world would have been that you would approach an editor or you'd be employed by an editor of said food magazine or food section and they would get you to write. And so you could write anything from, you know, I did a story on free range pork for a Christmas issue. So let's do roast pork for Christmas and let's interview all the small free-range pork producers around town and so you do a roundup of all the pork producers and have this fabulous shot of roast pork and it was very much in consort with editors of sections you know so you'd talk you'd pitch ideas they'd they'd say yay or nay and you'd go from there and you and you're right restaurant guides it's a bit like the celebrity chef I think If you imagine the world like a huge mountain, for instance, the only bit you can really see is that top pointy bit. There's a whole lot Mm. of other stuff happening. I suppose that the the better image is is the iceberg, isn't it? There's something that's quite visible to most of us. But when you actually start looking into the how gargantuan the food 
industry is, and it crosses over many industries from the initiation of the food, growing of it, farming, through to food production and processing, through to distribution and marketing, through to purchasing by consumers and then consumption at the family table or in a formal setting like a restaurant or a catering venue or a conference venue. Mm. So the restaurant critic, that's the kind of fancy pants end of food writing, I think. It's the it's the visible, the sexy, the, oh, wouldn't that be cool mm. to eat out and not have to pay for it mm. kind of thing. Mm. There's something in that, that you're getting an experience that so few people actually get. So there's something very appealing about people's perception of restaurant reviewing. Mm. Gay Bilson, who's a Sydney restaurateur, has said that if you're interested in food, eventually you have to become interested in agriculture. And that's exactly what's happened for me. I did start out restaurant writing and now I'm firmly got my feet in the dirt of the Mm. soil, of the field where it's grown. That's where the really interesting stuff happens for me. You've just said, and I totally agree with you, that restaurant critiquing is the tip of the iceberg, but it is something that people are very interested in and Mm -hmm. I certainly get a lot of questions about it and I'm sure you do too. Mm. One of the ones I get asked most often is, does the restaurant know you're coming? Now, you produced a restaurant guide for many years. Can you answer that question? Yeah, look, You know that digital divide I was talking about? The role of the journalist in the past was that you did not insert yourself into the story. You were separate to the story. You were simply the reporter of the information. Mm. So while you had a byline, you weren't talking from your perspective. It was a very clear separation. For me, it was absolutely essential to be invisible. I did not feel I was doing my job correctly if I was visible. And so I went to great lengths to do this. I never did what the famous New York Times critic Ruth Reichel did. She adopted disguises. But we're talking about a very powerful position that she was in, in a market like New York. Mm. It was imperative that she eat without being seen. The beauty about not being seen is that you can eliminate that idea of preferential treatment. Hospitality is about looking after your guests. So if a restaurant's actually doing a really good job, they're going to look after you, me and the next person in exactly the same way. And so the values of the restaurant can be seen in that situation. If they do see and recognise a reviewer coming in, nothing should shift. The truth is, stuff does. Yeah. The message gets to the kitchen, the kitchen pulls out all stops, etc. So I did hear stories that restaurants kept photographs of reviewers in their kitchen so that staff would be able to recognise them uh, when they arrived. But I don't believe I was ever in that realm. So I just worked on blissful ignorance that no one would recognise me. And I kept a low profile. But, you know, what's funny is, of course, they recognise you because you're the dork in the corner asking all the stupid (laughs) questions that you're really interested in. And they pick you for a reviewer straight away. Mm. And the other thing that happened was I used to do regular radio work. And I'd sometimes go to restaurants and the minute I opened my voice, something would happen with the maitre d' or they'd kind of go, well, how do I know that voice? (laughs) And when it finally dawned on them, there would be a shift in their relationship with you during the meal. Mm. The other way I know that people are recognised is that in country towns, when reviewers would go to regional centres, 
they would stay in the area for a period of time and do all the restaurants. Mm. That was a really economical way of sending a journo to a particular part of the state. And so, of course, one restaurant rings the next, you know, <laughs> so-and-so's in town, they've been over yet. And so everyone's on high alert because the regional restaurants, there's so much at stake to be listed in an, a state guide. Mm. You know, it, it, it feeds into the tourism market. There's just so much benefit to be seen by city readers, basically. Mm. Talking about the idea that restaurants and cafes really benefit from this, the reviewer has a certain responsibility to keep that in their head when they're doing a review. So how do you be truthful without crossing any legal or moral lines when you're writing a review? Well, interestingly, there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of restaurants out there and cafes who do not need to be written about. If you're thinking about a small Vietnamese hole in the wall in the middle of a suburb with a high number of Vietnamese people living in it, they're not reading a city restaurant guide for where they go to eat. They're following their noses. Mm. They know the best place to get fur. They know the place they like to go. They they know the place to connect with their friends and their community. I, I live in a small suburb, got lots and lots of cafes and restaurant choices. I know where I'm going to go based on the fact that I'm a local and these places are important to me. Therefore, a restaurant guide telling me it is or isn't great is it's not going to affect me as a consumer. Mm. And actually on that note, there are some cafes that are just deemed Instagram worthy and they become a pilgrimage site. And so you've got a lot of people from all over the world descending on these businesses which actually then changes the experience for a local, for instance. So everyone's trying to democratise restaurant writing, but traditionally they have honed in on the elite end of restaurants, the the restaurants that are breaking the rules. What a chef can present in a restaurant is very difficult to replicate at home just from the time and number of people involved in putting a dish together and some of the skills and methods and experience really. A restaurant chef is very experienced at cooking so that very simple cooking tasks become second nature. They're cooking the same thing over and over. We're doing a lot of different things once or twice. So our level of expertise is always going to be different to a restaurant. So I'm not keen on following restaurants for my everyday food choices. But what I love about them, and this is their job, is that at the gastronomic end, they're there to push us into new arenas. The chef's job is to be different, but it's to push every envelope of food that you can think about. And I admire that. I love it. And that's where the sexy part of food critiquing and restaurant reviewing is aimed at. So the other stuff is it's necessary communication that taps into, from an editorial perspective, what does the reader want and need and what are they going to respond to? So they're the kinds of considerations you have when you're putting together a book. You know, the, the, one of the restaurant guides I worked on for a long time, which I was responsible for the content lists, you know, we ran to five or 600 restaurants covering Sydney. So you had your standout, amazing, extraordinary, got-to-go-there restaurants And then you had lots and lots and lots of middle market appealing local experiences. Now, I've completely forgotten the question, Natasha. (laughs) 
The question is, how do you tread that line between reporting on what the restaurant is like That's without, right. yeah. without you know, legally or morally, what are your obligations? Look, uh, from a, a journalistic point of view, you would say the responsibility is for the, to the reader. So you would be looking to communicate something that mattered and help the reader make a decision. What you're t- potentially talking about is when you have a restaurant where the current public perception is X and as a reviewer you go there and you experience Y. So you might be going to what's touted as one of the best restaurants in the world and you go there and it is a very diminished experience. Then you've got a dilemma about how best to report that. And in actual fact, I did have an instance like that when I was working on the Sydney Morning Herald's Good Food Guide where I was sent to one of our leading restaurants and it really did feel as though the restaurant was not at its sparkling best. Now, what happens in those instances is other you go back to re-review and you will go back to review often enough that you get you, get, you, you come up with a consensus thing. So I had this restaurant and I wrestled with that for days. And then when I came to write it, I wrestled with it for hours. Like it would have potentially been a full day's work as I tried to sort through how I could say what I was going to say about this disappointing experience. And you do feel an incredible moral weight around the potential implications of this. I mean, it was quite significant and it involved the loss of a hat, which isn't a situation peculiar to me. It would be hat to all the editors and all the writers regularly because this, you know, this bestowing of a hat is a very big deal, not just from a commercial point of view for the restaurant, but reputational and the reader's perception of it being a great place to go and eat. Mm. And over time, you realise that, you know, the difference of a mark here and a mark there and a, and a hat here and a hat there. I've heard restaurateurs say often enough that those things are important, but they're not the main thing. The main thing for them is to have a viable business and you can't rely on a hat to have hundreds of people walking through the door every day, 365 days of the year. Mm. You have to be doing other things that are right. So most restaurateurs and chefs who run restaurants recognise that it's up to them to be delivering in a pretty regular pattern for the audience. Mm. I still haven't answered the question, have I? (laughs) Not exactly. So legally, I mean, I know in Australia we have very, very strict libel laws. There's a lot that you can't say. And that, I believe, also covers online. If you have your own blog, you can't just write terrible things. The onus is on you to prove that that's true if challenged. Yes, that's right. And it's very difficult. Eating food is a subjective um, experience. So it's a very moot point anyway. But what you're really talking to is common decency. When you're writing, it's not your job to come out with all guns firing. I mean, everything has to be qualified that has to be proven as you say the only other thing i would say is it comes down to common decency if you're not if you're not going to be able to say it something to someone's face you shouldn't write it if you're writing it you need to qualify it and you need to ha- absolutely fine to have an opinion but it needs as you say needs to come within the the law i just think 
it's nicer to be nice. But that said, drama is a driver of stories. Mm. So I can see why some people might create drama for its own sake, because that is what grabs people's attention. In the past, newspapers and magazines were tomorrow's fish and chip paper. Mm. Today, digitally, the words are there forever. Mm. So Barbara, like me, you're a freelancer. Tell our listeners what that means exactly and what life is like as a freelancer. And also what are the most important lessons you've learned as a freelancer? It is the most precarious existence you could select, (laughs) you could choose. Mm -hmm. It's precarious, it's nerve wracking, it's on the edge, and you wouldn't do it unless you loved all those things. Mm. Because it is tough. It is, and it's got tougher. And one of the reasons it's got tougher is that there are more people wanting to ride and more people being prepared to do it at no charge. So this has put a real, in some areas of, of the media, getting a younger person who is prepared to work for a very low or, or zero rate because they're building their portfolio and they want to build their experience versus an experienced person who has a mortgage and can turn around the story quickly and to to the brief, which is actually a money saving in itself, can it, it can it can be a difficult decision if you're really working on a tight budget in a mm. magazine. So you know, pro, income is stagnated. I'd say the rates are lower now than they were. 10, 15 years ago. 20 years um, ago, Barbara. I get paid less than I did 20 yes. years ago. <laughs> I didn't kind of want to flag oh. the age the age situation here. Yes, so there's, so there's a wage stagnation and there's more competition. Mm. And in fact, and I'm not talking about quality publications, but generally the written word isn't respected to the degree. Yes, it's, there's a lack of respect for what it takes to turn something out. So you'll get a client, I just had a text a moment ago, can you do this by yesterday? And you, I know that those people think this is, oh, come on, you just have to write a few lines. Mm. You just have to do a bit of quick this, you have to do that. Well, that that's actually not what writing is. And I'm not trying to make it more, more harder than it is, Or, but good writing takes time because what you have to do is understand the purpose and you have to think through how to do this in a clear way, and that takes time. So Mm. actually, at the end of the day, your words should belie the effort that you've put in. Mm, Exactly. It's got to be easy enough to read so that people want to continue reading it right through to the end. And, And that takes clear thinking. And if it's a subject that's complicated or complex, it takes you a while to to sort it through. Mm. Yeah. What about some tips to stay motivated and on track? I'm a terrible, my, my thing is procrastinating when I've got mm. a deadline on. And I think I use it as a stress reliever, but also, you know, we were talking about before that need sometimes to just walk away from your work and, and do something else and come back to it and see it with fresh eyes. But what, what are some of the techniques that you use to stay on track and make sure that you hit deadline every time? So you've just conflated two things there. The leaving, the sto- re- leaving your written words and coming back to it and editing it is actually part of the job. So it's not a time management issue. That's actually just part of how it's a thing to do that will make your writing better mm-hmm. to write the story and then come back and edit it is... They're two separate tasks and it's good to separate those two tasks rather than try to do them both at the same time. So there's that. 
Procrastinating is another thing altogether. And if you didn't do it, you would not get to all those recipes that you wanted to bake. <laughs> so it's actually a really good shortcut to another goal, right? I So what are my tips? Okay, I, I use the Pomodoro technique all the time. It mm. keeps me focused. It's just a timer technique where you put a timer on, you work for 25 minutes, and then you get up and have a five-minute break. And in that five minutes, you do something completely different too. You don't sit at the computer. You don't try to force the work. You take a complete mental break. I put the timer on for five minutes. The minute the bell goes back off, I put the timer on for another 25 minutes. And I do a minimum of two hours like that. And what I've learned is it is amazing what you can achieve in 25 minutes. Mm. It edges you closer. It unlocks locks it progresses you towards your goal because at the end of the day your goal is one big piece of writing but it is made up of lots of small pieces of writing so if you're having difficulty coming to the task you can start with something easily like if I'm writing a travel story I'll start often with the breakout box on the facts and figures how to get there what to do when you get Mm. there best places to eat. Once I've got the facts down, that's a great start. And then I don't often start at the first para. I start with places and things that I've been to. So it might be a paragraph on that destination's top restaurant or a walk down the main street. And so over the time of working in these 25-minute blocks, I get into a bit of a rhythm. And before you know it, you're doing an hour And before you know it, you're doing two hours. But taking breaks is critical. Possibly one of the hardest things actually is a long deadline. You know, when you're given a deadline that's a month ahead or something like that, and you just, I I need the adrenaline rush, I guess, of having a close deadline. So you you procrastinate even more. You think, oh, wait till closer to the time. I've got all these other things. Well, I don't even think like that. I just don't do it. (laughs) And then closer to the time, I go, holy heck, what's going on? I guess we're Um, addicted to that adrenaline rush of getting work done quickly. But it is amazing that, well, I'll say two things there. I do leave things to the last minute and, but you know what? You've actually been working on them in the meantime. There's been stuff churning over in your mind and when it comes down to sit down, you've actually done quite a Mm, bit of the work. That's very true. Um, That said, you never press the send button feeling like you've done your best. Do you find that? No, yes, I do find that. I do find that. And, in fact, when I read my work back later when it's been published, I think, oh, why didn't I change that or why why did I put that in? I should have done it like this. Holy heck, you (laughs) reread? I do. It's 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 almost like an exquisite torture. Yeah, it's an it's a torture because I, I, it makes me feel too bad to think I could have done a better job, and that's a constant kind of travail. But what I've learned is it's better to do a job that's not exactly what you want than not to do the job at all. Mm. So it, it's a process of being in progress. You, you engaging with the work, doing the work, and and moving on from it because you could think that you could work on a piece forever and ever and you will get it perfect. And Mm. that just is not the case. No. And we are our own harshest critics. We we are the only people who would read that piece and go, oh, why did I choose that particular word in paragraph three? I could have chosen a better word. We are the only people who possibly think that when reading it. That's right. But that is us wanting to perfect our craft. That's us recognising all of the potential 
in writing, all of the potential ways of expressing ideas, all of the potential words you could use. It's all about nuance in the end. If I use that word over that word, am I getting closer to what I'm trying to communicate? So that I think is just like a chef sharpening their knife or a blacksmith getting the right temperature in the forge. We all have a craft and our tool is words and it's keeping our tool in its best condition. You mentioned having done the cookery course. Do you think it's important for people who are going to be writing about food to have a good general knowledge about cooking? I think it goes without saying that you must understand your subject matter and a deeper knowledge is better because you become a better writer when you can make references across the topic. We all have an opinion of food. See, we're all food experts because we all eat every day and we know what we like and dislike and we know what we want when we're spending money on food. So we all have an opinion, but we don't just write to share our opinion. We write to educate, amuse, elucidate. And so for me, I'm driven always to include as much knowledge as I can in any kind of piece of writing. So I'm looking for poetry references, fictional references. Like I've got a really big thing for what detectives in crime fiction eat. So when when I read crime fiction, I make notes of what the detective eats because I'm... <laughs> You know, I'm convinced and I can now verify this, that the European detectives eat much better than the American <laughs> detectives. They live on um, donuts, so I, don't they? <laughs> they live on donuts and whiskey and or bourbon and the Americans anyway. They're always in a rush, whereas the Italian detectives always take as much time for lunch as they need. That sounds like a thesis now, uh, subject. Well, I have I actually have written about it because because my point simply is that food is stopping. So is cooking. It's stopping and slowing down. It's a moment in our day where we actually can, and that's the word repast, you know, you replenish, you replenish energy, you're thinking, you unwind in your day. So it's a very powerful moment in a day if you choose to say it like that. So anyway, I see food references everywhere and personally I think it's fun to stick them into anything that you're writing. I'm not sure what my readers would say. (laughs) I love that. Well, let's get down to the writing bit, Barbara. How do you become a good food writer? So you can drop the word food from that sentence and basically just focus on being a good writer. I remember the very, very first assignment I got and I was so nervous and so scared and would have spent four to six hours writing, maybe even longer, writing maybe 200 words. I kept changing it. I kept I just kept trying to make it more sexy. I kept, like I was really pushing because I wanted it to be seen. I wanted it to be noticed. It was, a, it was an audition piece, really. I'd been asked to contribute to a magazine and I wanted to make an impression. And what I wrote was absolutely good enough and they used me, but the torture that it took me to get there. So writing is torturous. Nothing's Mm -hmm. changed. I can still have complete anxiety and concern when I go to write a story, but what's changed is my ability to manage that because that is the writing process. Mm. It is a challenging process. Whatever you're writing has to be, once again, to the benefit of the reader. And the way you do that is you write clearly, concisely, directly. And sometimes that doesn't feel good enough. 
And that's the thing about us wanting to sometimes inhabit the voice of another writer we admire. You become a better writer the more you respect your voice and how you say things. Now, this doesn't mean, and I think this applies to people who are working on their own blogs and their own websites, this doesn't mean just because you've written it, it is the golden sentence that is going to stop the world turning on its axis. (laughs) One of the disciplines of being a good writer is recognising that writing pretty much can always be improved. So being open to external comment, and we were really lucky in our day working on newspapers and magazines because you had a whole lot of really talented people who knew and understood words and telling stories who would guide you. So editors saying that's not good enough or that doesn't work or you're not hitting the point, sub-editors saying this word's not working, that word's not working. So you learn to be quite flexible and open with your writing, open to people making comment about it, recognising that at the end of the day, we're all working towards a piece that is going to be the best it can be. Most digital writing, from what I can see, is not deeply considered. It's mostly narrative, first-person, stream-of-consciousness writing. Now, the discipline there is to organise your ideas so that your clear thinking comes across to the reader. At the end of the day, it comes down to editing because I can read blog posts and newsletters and other digital material that I know has been generated by the writer and sent out by the writer, usually in one sitting. And writing is a very different process to editing and they should be done separately. And I'm sounding like a teacher now, aren't I? Um, <laughs> well, you are. Because we're so tempted to edit as we go. We're so tempted to write the sentence and say, oh, oh no, that's not right. And this is the beauty of computers because they enable you to do that. Mm. In the old days when you wrote by hand, it was quite a lot, of work, a lot of work to go back and rewrite by hand, you know. So it made, I think writing by hand has a lot of benefit to it because it makes you really slow down and think about what you're trying to say And then when you read it back, you realise most of it is shit, Mm. but there's jewels in there. And the jewels usually happen at the bottom of the story. So editing is about pulling out the jewels and polishing them, usually bringing them up to the top and then getting, then just going back to basics. Is this clear? Is this concise? Does the reader know what I'm on about? So I I read and I'm referencing a, a newsletter that I got yesterday which is very was very sweet story, actually, and quite thoughtful. But they took about 400 words to say something that could have been mm. said in 100. So people do think what they write is really amazing and I'm, I'm of a different opinion and that's actually changing how all of us are experiencing writing because the more woolly writing that's out there, our perception of what good writing looks like is changing. But I'm of the belief that the more bad writing that's out there makes it easier to see the good writers. Mm, interesting. I know as a writer, it one of the things that I struggle with is letting go and starting again. So for example, I've written an intro paragraph and I really love it but the rest of it isn't flowing and I'll work and work on the rest of the body of that piece rather than going back and just changing tack completely (laughs) with the intro. 
I know. We're all attached to our we, stuff, we you know, are. particularly if you think, oh, I've never done that. Oh, that's cute. Oh, I like that sentence. Yeah. So this has got a name, Kill Your Darlings or Kill Your Baby. <laughs> I've never heard this, that. Oh, you haven't? Okay, no. so that's a real classic, which is you fall in love with a particular turn of phrase or a sentence or a lead and it just ain't working. And someone outside of yourself can tell you that and just cross. That's where the red pen comes in, you know. The editor would just push the red pen through it and you would be forced to go back out and rewrite that piece. Now, that is where writing and editing treated them as two separate tasks. And what will happen is you've written this, right, and you're going back and rewriting and rewriting. But are you looking at your written piece and stepping away from it and looking back on it and saying, is this piece of writing doing the job for which it's intended? Is it communicating to my reader in a clear and concise way? What is my point? And am I making the point well? And does it fit the voice and tone of the publication or the purpose for which I'm writing it? Now, they're the questions that you are always asking yourself. And so for you to write the story and leave it and come back to it one day or more days afterwards, you will have a different relationship with those words. And so losing the piece, losing that lovely sentence is going to be less painful. And if it is too painful to do, what I usually do is I cut, copy and paste it and put it in a file called, you know, golden sentences that I will love till the day I die (laughs) so that I can admire their cleverness, (laughs) even if it doesn't make publication. Mm. That's a a really good tip about going away and, and leaving your writing. Sometimes you just need that space. Words, we use words every day to communicate. They're quite cheap in some ways. You know, we can we can wax lyrical, we can go on and on. So being overly precious about putting that on paper is interesting to me. Words come, they come, they will always come, even if you're experiencing this sense of a block or not knowing what to say. I find writing for the digital space really challenging myself And what I've learned to do is just put something down because the beauty of the Mm. digital space is you can change it tomorrow. So this idea of constantly improving upon a sentence for a website is really great because you can do it at little cost and it's not not locked in. Mm. So there's a freedom in that too. Can you give us a few recommendations of books or articles or writers that wannabe food writers should read in your opinion? So I can only really give you English speaking references because there are lots of great food writers out there writing in all languages and I don't have access to that material. So how I will answer that is historically I'm interested in food history and I read a lot of old books for their language and for understanding, you know, where did, you know, when did sugar become used in Europe and patisserie create? You know, how did that come about? Because we wouldn't have had baking without sugar. So then that leads into all the stories around where sugar's grown, how it's transported to Europe, colonial wars, et cetera, et cetera. So that's interesting to me, but I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible when I'm terrible when people ask me for restaurant recommendations as well. Yeah. So are there any critics, for example, whose work you particularly admire, any cookbook authors that you think really nail food writing? Yes. Okay. I was living in Italy in 2000 and I was working at 
an absolutely exquisite five-star hotel. And one of the accoutrements of places like this, circular tables in the, in the entry lobby around the stairs, stacked with books. And the owner of this hotel had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cookbooks. And I picked up one called How to Eat by Nigella Lawson. And I could not put it down. It was a fantastic book to read at that time in my life. I'd lost my cooking mojo. And reading that book, Nigella Lawson is a really good writer. Now, I have not read any other of her books. That's the only one I've read. It's the only one I use. Funnily enough, 21 years on, I can see how dated some of the recipes are. Mm. But when someone is telling you how to use, how to make something with prunes and explaining the difference of the Dijon plum, which is a French plum, and telling you not to buy the prunes that are dried up and look like teddy bears' noses, but you think, whoa, you know, who else, where else have you heard that description? And there's some tropes in particularly recipe writing where it's just your standard your standard phrase, rub butter in till it resembles breadcrumbs. Now, she discusses that. That's not, they never look like breadcrumbs to her. So she talks about what they do look like to her. I now describe rubbing butter into flour as looking like oatmeal, that you get this kind of little round piece that looks like a rolled oat. She talked about what, at what point you stop pureeing uh, something. And she just made it all very, yeah, she just really refreshed the, the food language, I think. Mm. But I'm big on the writers from the period of time when the world was opening up and people were writing about cultures other than their own. So I just borrowed a Richard Olney book from a friend. I Last week I reread MKF Fisher's book about living in France, my time in France, in fact, it's called. So MKF Fisher was an influential food writer, an American who moved to France in the 20s or the 30s. And she wrote prolifically uh, through her life and a lot of what she uh, and her books are uh, considered, she's considered one of the best food writers. Now, she's not a recipe writer. She's writing about food and food experiences, like going to the market. My little memory of reading her, her most famous book was she was describing the croque monsieur sold at the San Francisco Grill in America. And the rule of thumb was that the croque monsieur was to be no thicker than a dime, I think it was. <laughs> so I only ever made my croque monsieurs that way. And I can't eat one that looks like a, a doorstop, you know. So I, I look for lyrical language. It comes back to me to the beautiful, just beautifully written work. So having worked within the same media company as you, you'll know there are certain words that our mastheads or our managing editors discouraged us from using. Let's go through some of those. Well, look, there's always jargon in any any area of writing. And just going back to the idea of uh, a managing editor setting down, uh, setting down 
what's known as a style guide. So every publication you work on would have a style guide, a way to spell. Like in the early days, it was things like how we spell yogurt, how we spell hummus. The English spelling of something can vary. There there are many ways to spell something. So you have a little meeting about how are we going to spell it? Because what you're looking for is consistency so that every time you mention yogurt, it's spelt the same way. It's not like it's a right or a wrong way. It's just the way we've chosen to spell that word. And you would want to avoid jargon. So, and you would want to, you want to avoid words that that do not contribute to the sentence or to the thing that you're trying to say. So, I mean, I've got some bugbears, but... Tell us about your bugbears because mine is delicious because it conveys nothing except that it tastes good, but it doesn't tell you anything about the the texture or the flavours or anything else, but that's very overused in food writing, obviously. And I have been guilty of doing it myself, I admit. Look, it's an easy, quick shorthand, isn't it? It's saying, look, I found this really tasty in the mouth and I'm sure you will too. Yummy is definitely out. You don't ever do yummy. But delicious is an interesting one because you can describe something as delicious, but it's in relation to you as so the object to the subject. You know, you are describing the object and you are saying that you are finding it pleasing in the mouth, but that doesn't relate to the reader. So how can I talk about this dish so that the reader gets what the experience is? And that's where you would then look at descriptive terms to describe what you're seeing, uh, what you're smelling, and what you are tasting. Taste is a very, very difficult thing to communicate. And what you've done here, Natasha, so beautifully is actually gone to the nub of why food writing is as difficult as it is. Mm. If you're talking about food directly, you need to be evocative, you need to be accurate, you need to have really good descriptive language, and that's all in the detail. So paying attention to the detail is key for people who want to communicate about food. One of the exercises I do in my writing classes is I get people to bring a brown paper bag and put something from their kitchen in the bag. And then we pass the bags around the room and you have to take what's in your brown paper bag out and just work on writing to describe it without anyone else knowing what you're writing about so that we get to see how your ability to communicate uh, to the reader comes about. I have actually started using a word that was banned in our uh, media company, probably during your time as well, which is crispy. And and Mm. most reviewers are told not to use crispy. I have started using it again. I'm waving the flag for crispy. Well, look, the word is crisp. Yeah. That's all there is to it. The word is crisp. And you just want to add a Y to it. And I think this adds to the conversation around there is a movement around certainly digitally, probably Instagrammy, where it's cosy. We really want cosy. Mm. We want, and there's a cuteness to this kind of writing as well. We want people to feel, you know, safe and secure. And so this is why people are telling their food stories. And I think this is probably the biggest growth area in food writing, the personal food story, food memoir, my grandmother, my memory you know, this this kind of writing. And uh, look, I have been inculcated with that and I wouldn't, I couldn't write crispy, but go you. Go you <laughs> if you want to, Natasha. And that Thank speaks you. I'm to, breaking out. No, it's, it speaks to the changing language and to changing meaning and that it 
has it has a meaning for you to add a Y to the word crisp and obviously to readers as well because you find you see it everywhere. I have a caveat to that actually. I have to say that I wouldn't use it in a professional writing sense. I use it ah. on my Instagram or on my Facebook when I'm talking more intimately with people. Yes. So you've, 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 still... you've, you've reinforced my point. That's exactly <laughs> where it is. It's yeah. in that cosy space yeah. where you're talking to someone in an intimate way. Yes. Because that's the communication on Instagram, isn't it? Mm. You are talking directly to this, you know, whoever it is, the reader, but it's not it's different context. Mm, yeah, you do use a different language. Now, Barbara, you do a lot of profile on producers and obviously that involves interviewing people. Can you give us some tips on best practice for doing that? What kind of information are you looking to extract from people when you're interviewing them? So how I do it is that I become the dumbest person on the planet. I haven't done any pre-research I haven't done any planning for this interview now that's not true of course Mm. I do plan but when I turn up for the interview I am just a sponge and I think more than anything I find the rhythm of the person I hang out with them listen to them sometimes when I play back my recordings of the interview I realize I'm not listening enough because I'm a bit of a gas bagger and I like to have a chat and so there are, you know, when I pay a transcriber, this is, this is I pay a transcriber to t- transcribe tapes sometimes and I just think, oh, if I don't know how to shut up, I'd be much cheaper bill on that <laughs> because I'm doing half the bloody talking. But I don't know, I just, I just like people and I like hearing their story and I'm really open to just hanging with them until I get it. I've never not got a great interview. You don't have to spend a lot of time actually on interviews. I had an instance once where I had to drive five hours out of Sydney to interview a lamb producer. And I'm not fantastic in the morning and I'm not fantastic getting going. So I was leaving Sydney late already. And so I I phoned them and said, I'm leaving Sydney late. I will, are we okay to be an hour later? And they said, well, look, I've allowed this amount of time for you and I'm not prepared to extend the interview time. So I arrived on the farm with something like 20 minutes left of the time that he had made available to talk to me. So we sat at his Laminex kitchen table and we did speed interview and it was fantastic because it focused us so clearly on the key elements of the story that I needed. Name, age, address, how long have you been farming sheep? What kind of sheep do you farm? What do they eat? What are the seasons? What's, you know, what's your daily routine look like? And it was such a fun interview. I came away feeling really high because it wasn't Like I spent enough time on the farm to take in what he had there. You know, Mm. I got a visual of it. So it goes to show all sorts of things can happen in the interviews. Mm. I find email interviews where you give your respondent opportunity to write their answers, you lose the human spark in Mm. those kind of stories. And it's really fine for something that a small article, a clickbait, as you say, a five-pointer, what are the five things Mm. I should know about growing garlic? That's easy, but I always prefer to speak to the person like that. Mm. I like the email interview when it's something very technical or recording the interview when it's something technical. So I can actually both have the time later to understand what it is they're explaining it as they're explaining it. So I can either paraphrase that in a way that other people are going to be able to understand, but also just to feel confident 
that I'm understanding the subject and how that particular thing works. Well, you actually just said two things that are really important to good writing, and I know that that's where you are positioned. You, you mentioned time. Good writing takes time. And when you're trying to rush something, I mean, look, you can, you can write, you turn out a piece and meet a deadline where it's a f- kind of a functional piece, but a good story takes time and good writing takes time. And this is not, time is not a commodity that we all get. We are all pressed for time. So good writing is under the crunch of lack of time, I think is one thing. Time for you to understand the subject matter. That's why some writers work in particular niche area because they can fast track the understanding of the subject matter. And and the truth is to be a good writer about something, you need to understand your subject matter. Mm. And that harks back to our conversation about restaurant reviewing. It isn't just the fancy pants swanning into the restaurant and um, sitting at a table and being fed and coming out and writing, you know, either good or bad um, things. It's understanding a whole lot of stuff around you and being alert to all the things around you. A writer is constantly alert, constantly looking for story angles. You're taking in the colours, the sounds, the smells of what's around you. All of it's going to inform your story and that is imperative for good writing. So, Barbara, say I enjoy writing about food. I think I'm okay at it and I want to get something published. I want to approach a magazine or a newspaper editor with an idea for an article to write for them. What's the process? What do I need to think about before I even send in a pitch? And how do I actually write a convincing pitch? Oh, look, this is the toughest, toughest question. Editors today are incredibly hard-pushed to find new talent in in, in some ways, like finding new talent and nurturing talent is time-consuming. So the big shortcut that I think lots of editors are taking is making approaches to people who have got Instagram profiles or blogging profiles. Mm. And in that medium, you can demonstrate uh, your ability An editor can't take a punt on you unless they can see pre-existing work. Sure. So if you're a complete newbie, your job is to get stuff out there somehow. That could be uh, writing on spec for some smaller magazines, a suburban newspaper, community newspapers or online um, options Because when you go to pitch a story, you need to show the editor where you've been published before. No one can afford to take that kind of risk of a complete um, new, you know, a completely new person to Mm. the genre. So that said, the other thing you have to do is really be respectful to the editor and their time, their precious, precious time. And you have to pitch absolutely hitting the nail on the head to that particular publication. Mm. So that means you understanding and knowing what that publication is attempting to achieve. You need to understand their style and you need to understand the structure of the magazine and where your piece might fit. And to write a pitch, you kind of need to do a little synopsis, what this story is, what your angle is, the kinds of experts that you might be interviewing for the story. Keeping in mind that magazine world, I'm thinking magazines here, Mm. but it would apply to newspapers, they're cyclical. 
So there's always going to be the same stories will pop up uh, in particular cycles. So, of course, you're going to have your festive and seasonal kinds of stories and they're going to happen, obviously, annually. So the other cycle I'm thinking is the magazines churn through so much content. I would suggest 90% of the time they've done a story similar to the one you're pitching sometime or other. Mm. And so if it happens to coincide with a fairly, fairly closely to what the magazine has previously published, you're just going to get a no, not based on your talent or the idea, just the fact that they can't run another story on blueberries so close to each other. So there's there's calendars of, of the magazine scheduled in to take into account and that's an invisible world to you. You don't know what's coming up. But, you know, the name of the game like dating is it's a numbers game. The more pictures you put out there, the greater the chance of one of your story ideas being seen by an editor. And what's your position on following up? Do you follow up with an editor if you don't have a response? Oh, how, have long, how long do you leave it? Oh, you have to. I think it's all about your own comfort levels. Some people leave it as long as a couple of months. And it's about it's about you. It's not about the editor. It's about am I w- willing to wait here for three months or more? Am I willing to live in this vacuum of not knowing? What can I do to progress my work? And sitting around and waiting for an editor's response is not progress. So what I do is I just keep, pushing forward Mm. I do the next one the next one the next one Mm. and so that I'm driving I'm driving the workload but I keep a spreadsheet system and I write down all the pitches who I've pitched it to what date I pitched it and then I have follow-up columns the better your relationship with the editor the quicker the turnaround time or the quicker the yes or the no and also the opportunity to discuss it because the idea might appeal to them or an aspect of the idea might appeal, but they might want you to take a different direction, in which case they will either phone you or email you and say, I'd like this, but could we do this? It's about building relationships and that means connecting with people. Mm, of course, we must resign ourselves to sometimes just never getting a response. I mean, that happens quite often that you even yeah, after a follow-up, you won't get a response. Move on, move on. Next editor, next editor. And that is truly, I think, in most instances, you're new to the publication and they don't know you, they don't have time or there's internal stuff occurring and that your time will come. I just trust the time will come to work with that publication and you just keep putting out there and keep focused on the magazines or the newspapers or the online spaces that you want to be published in. Can you share with readers, and I'm also happy to share my experience, what a typical payment is if there is such a thing today for a piece of work? So there's two worlds that we straddle. The publishing world, the writer cannot usually set a fee. The editorial world operates on a word count that they offer. And I don't have this link to hand, but I'm pretty sure there was a group of writers who all write what they get paid on what publication in a spreadsheet online somewhere. Mm. And I can't exactly remember where it came from, Mm. but you can go on and see there uh, what people are getting paid. And 
most of them, certainly in the editorial world, anywhere from 30 cents to um, 70, 75 cents a word in editorial. And good writers and people with good reputations, I'm sure, are getting a little bit more than that. And I know that in the corporate world, it's a different kettle of fish and it's impossible to quote on a job until you've got the content of the job and you understand all of the implications of the brief. And, of course, those jobs tend to be more project-based fees rather than a per-word fee in my experience. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The whole corporate, online, big business kind of world, they've got very different budgets and your contribution as a writer has a very different value to them. So if you're writing sales copy for a food newsletter, for instance, for a food client, your words have the potential to increase that company's bottom line or Mm. increase their sales for that week. And so that has a very different value proposition to a magazine, I Mm. think. Mm. It's very hard to put value on yourself and ask for it. I think every freelancer deals with doubt and what's my true value. And because we're singular units rather than a collective, you lack the collective bargaining power, you are at the mercy of the client unless you get tough Mm. and unless you say this is what I'm worth. And the problem is because it's such a precarious life, many of us will take work that doesn't even reflect the work's value or or Mm. what you will put into it, Mm. but you take it because you need need work coming through. Mm. So it takes a lot of courage to stop and go, well, actually, that is, I'm not going to take that work anymore because it it's a difficult client, it's a challenging client, it takes up a lot of my time and at the end of the day when I put that time into the uh, amount that I'm earning, it doesn't make sense. Whereas there are some other jobs that come along that are reasonably paid but you can do them so quickly and so easily they actually make more financial sense And so as a freelancer, you're also a small business owner or small business operator, and you have to look at the business aspect of the work that you're doing. And that would suggest then for me to say that you don't spend all your time writing. So even to generate the writing work, you have to do pitches. Then when you get the story, you have to research it. You have to build relationships. You have to maintain relationships. So you're always looking for work. Then when you get the work, there's more work than just the writing in it. Then when you press the send button, there's follow-up, there's checking publication, there's thank yous to the people that you interviewed, there's invoicing, there's bookkeeping. So you need to allow time for all of that. Barbara, in 2012, you started Food and Words Festival and it's usually on or around my birthday and I've never been able to make it because of that because I'm either away somewhere or doing something but tell us about what Food and Words is. So the annual Writers Festival is a festival program of authors whose work touches food in some way. So we have had poets, fiction writers, scientists, economists, political economists, restaurateurs, chefs, cookery book writers. So it is an absolutely extraordinary day. And I say that not because I think it's extraordinary, but the feedback we get Mm. is amazing. Because for a food lover, it is an indulgence to spend a day 
in something that you have such a deep connection with. And so we have a fantastic bookstore, we feed and water everyone, we look after them, we have this beautiful program. It's a very special experience. So I will put links in our show notes on the website to the Food and Words Festival, which hopefully is going to return and not be on my birthday. So fingers crossed for both of those things. So thank you so much, Barbara. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you today and I could probably talk to you for another hour or so, I think. That's because we're so interested in food and writing. (laughs) Yes. Isn't it great? And that is the thing. So many of us are interested in food and writing. So when people come together with that shared interest, it's a really great experience. It is. And listeners, thank you as always for joining us. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review.